0: Amen. So if you would, go ahead and turn to Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. That's where we're going to be at this morning. And while you're doing that, imagine that you're 7 or 8 years old again. Some of you are laughing, so that's harder for some of you to, to imagine than others. Yeah. But imagine you're 7 or 8 years old again. It's a hot 95-degree summer day, and you've just been informed that you're going swimming. All right, yeah. There's jubilation. There's excitement. In our house, there's jumping up and down. There's singing. There's laughing. There's talking, sometimes talk that doesn't make sense. They're so excited. Sounds like they're speaking in tongues, you might say. But think about that feeling when you're that little and you're getting ready to go swimming. There's nothing else your mind's set on at that point. You're focused on going swimming and doing a huge cannonball into that pool. Well, this is where we're at this morning in the first four verses of Colossians chapter 3. We're to set our hearts and our minds on something new. Whereas before we knew Christ, our hearts were focused on the earth and its temptations. But now in Christ, we're focused on a new heavenly pattern the pattern of Christ. So think about a typical day in your life. You know, you wake up, you eat breakfast, you go to work, you talk to different people, you endure all kinds of hardships during the day, you enjoy blessings. Think about all these things, and as you do them, think about what's your heart ultimately set on, what's your mind ultimately set on as you do these things. I think we can easily get to a place in our lives where we're so busy that we go from one task to the next, one person to the next, that we don't even stop to consider why we're doing what we're doing. We just know things need done, and so we do them. And even worse, sometimes we can go from one thing to the next or one person to the next only looking for what we can get out of that person or that thing. So today we're going to look at a passage that tells us very clearly what we're to set our hearts and minds on as we walk through life. And I truly believe there's never a day that goes by that we would not benefit very practically in our walk with Christ from this passage. So just as a little bit of background before we get into chapter 3 here, Paul's writing to a group of believers. As we see in the beginning of the letter in chapter 1, he says, To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. He's never even seen these brothers face-to-face, as he mentions, but he knows of them through a common acquaintance, Epaphras, which you can read about in, in his letter. So for our scripture this morning, Paul does a, very few, a few very important things in the first two chapters. He, of course, greets them as he always does, but he also gives thanks to them. He's glad to hear that they're bearing fruit, and that they have love in the Spirit, as he mentions in chapter 1. And even though he's never seen them, he tells them that he's praying for them regularly. And very specifically, he says that they would be filled, or asked that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now there's more that he goes on to pray for them, but it's interesting that he starts with this. Because much of the first two chapters in Colossians that he starts with, he's upholding Christ as preeminent and Lord of all creation, and he's trampling on false teaching. So for him to start with that you'd be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding is important. So as Paul moves into chapter 3 where we're at today, he makes a major shift from false teaching and upholding Christ, which we always do, but he moves into practical, everyday life. So this is where we're at in Colossians chapter 3. should be up on the screen here. So I thought maybe we could do some participation again this morning. I'll read verses 1 and 3, and you as a group would read verses 2 and 4. So let's go for it. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ is the life of the earth, the Lord. Amen. Okay, we can go home now. So the first thing that we see here in verse 1 is that we need to understand our identity in Christ. It's so important. Paul says, if then you've been raised with Christ, and we see in the New King James Version, it translates it, since then you've been raised. We know Paul's speaking to believers here. And for believers, this is our eternal, secured position in Christ. We're raised with him. Through him we're forgiven. We're freed from the penalty of sin. We've been given his spirit. We're sealed with him. And we have eternal life in God's presence to look forward to. Paul also makes this wonderfully clear in his letter to the Ephesians. Chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. He says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So, what's interesting here is that if we've been raised up, that implies something else has happened beforehand. And that thing is that there's been a death. Verse 3 in our passage says, For you have died. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So this speaks to that old sinful man or sinful woman in us. And that word old that shows up later in chapter 3 in Colossians um, can refer to a timeline, but it also refers to old as in worn out or ragged or useless. So we're talking about this old sinful man or woman in us dying and being buried with Christ. And now that we're raised up, we have a brand new identity. We're a new creation. We're heading a new direction. So this is our eternal secure position now. We're raised with him. So what does that mean as we live on the earth? What do we do now? Now Paul in his writing sometimes uses clothing as a metaphor for putting off the old self and putting on Christ. You might think of a service man or woman who goes from wearing their civilian attire to now putting on their uniform for active duty. There's a new mindset. There's a new mission at hand. There's a bigger service here. Or as Joe hummer pointed out to the men a few weeks ago on our retreat, we now need to play our position. You think of a basketball team, a center, what do they do? They have a specific goal or mission in mind. They defend the basket. They rebound. They score close to the basket. That's what they're out there to do. And now that we're raised with Christ, we need to play our position as adopted sons and daughters of God. So we see in verses 1 and 2 that this new identity calls for us to change our affections and our thoughts forever. We read, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Our affections and thoughts, our hearts are to follow a better and more glorious heavenly pattern now. The pattern of Christ, different than that of the fleshly world. So you might ask, this sounds great. We're to set our hearts and our minds on things above and not on the earth but we live on the earth. So what does that mean? Well, fortunately, Paul knew we were going to ask that question, so he helps us understand the difference here. So first, let's look at what he's talking about in regards to things on the earth. We're going to look at this kind of like an umbrella, things on the earth, with false teaching, things on the earth, and fleshly immorality, things on the earth. So false teaching... And remember that Paul spends some of the first two chapters really dealing with false teaching and theology. So there are a few ideas really springing up in the Colossian church that were big problems. One is we have this sort of pagan mysticism. This was the belief that Jesus was just one in a long line of angelic emanations from God. Not really his son, but just another angel or revelation from God. This was on the path to secret higher knowledge. Some people even believed that all physical matter and flesh was evil, which led to a severe asceticism in their lives. Now here's your vocabulary word for the day, asceticism. This is the severe and excessive denial of the flesh, an overly excessive denial of the flesh to try to attain righteousness. So this lie was creeping in that Jesus was really only an angel, in a long line of angels who would have been tainted by physical flesh. So ultimately we get two false teachings for the price of one here. They were denying his deity as the son of God, and two, they were denying his true humanity as Emmanuel, God in the flesh. Big problems. Also in the church at that time there was a legalism that was still kind of spilling over from the Jews in a sense they are trying to earn their own salvation by their good works and we know scripture clearly tells us that's impossible for us absolutely impossible so these beliefs what do they do they lead to a denial of Christ as G- Jesus as lord and son of god they deny his deity many times they deny our need for an atonement of our sin And they deny the work that Jesus did on the cross, the sufficiency and the importance of it. And on the other hand, it elevates ourselves as though somehow we command our own eternal destiny, that we can earn it on our own. Not good. So no wonder, Paul prayed, that these people would have spiritual wisdom and understanding. And no wonder that he spends so much time upholding Christ as Lord of all and crushing false teaching. Now, these ideas are still all around us. If these sound familiar familiar to you, it's because they are. They're still all around us. So what does this sound like today? Well, for one, if you hear the term universal Christ, just run for the hills. This is a belief borrowed from New Age teaching that Christ is in all. He's in all of us. He's in the trees and the grass and everything. We're all one in him. Now the problem with this is that it one, it makes us God. But number two is that we forget our sinfulness and our separation from God in this belief, and it terribly minimizes Jesus' work on the cross. Or you might hear someone say, well, Jesus is a great teacher, but I you know I follow all kinds of you know spiritual leaders, and I think, I think I've got things under control here, or I've done more good things than bad sense of legalism, so I think I'm good. But we see the problems with these things. We know that we are not justified by works of the flesh, but through faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the God-man. We're dreadfully sinful and in need of salvation. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He also says, I am the resurrection and the life. And just as a side, do you remember when Jesus said that, I am the resurrection and the life? That was right before he raises Lazarus from the dead, right? So this is one of Jesus' great walking the walk moments when he says beforehand, he calls a shot, I am the resurrection and the life. Then he walks into the tomb, and there you go. He raises Lazarus from the dead. It's awesome. So we have false teachings, things on the earth. Now we look at behavioral immorality, things on the earth. So he goes on in chapter 3 as we move ahead a little bit into verses 5 through 10, and he tells us what these earthly behaviors are. And I thought maybe we'd do this again. I'll read one verse, and then you'll read the next, and we can alternate here. I'll start with verse 5. He says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Mm -hmm. In in these you too once walked when you were living in them. Go ahead. Do not lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Thank you. Things on the earth, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, and this word passion is an out of control or untamed passion. The term for sexual immorality here comes from the Greek word porneia, Now that sounds familiar. The term for this word porneia can also be translated fornication. Now what's fornication? This would simply mean sexual activity outside of a marriage between a man and a woman. It's a giving away of sexual purity. Sexual activity outside of a marriage between a man and a woman. As if there's any other kind of marriage than between a man and a woman. The government in recent times, is trying to tell us what a marriage is or expand the horizons of what a marriage is, but it doesn't change what God's spiritual reality is. He says, One man, one woman in a covenant before Him. So, Paul uses an urgent term about these things, especially these sexual sins put to death. In the original language, this is a really decisive, urgent phrase meaning do it now, don't wait, put these things to death. And for good reason. They come between us in our walk with Christ. And also look closely at what Paul says in verse 6 here. We can't gloss over this. Our culture needs to hear this. Our culture is trying to minimize sin or even completely do away with the idea of sin. But look at what he says, On account of these things the wrath of God is coming. That's serious. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. So lest we minimize sin. So parents and grandparents, we need to teach our kids and our grandkids the beauty of modesty. The beauty of modesty. The sacredness of the bodies that God's given us. We're living in such a hyper-sexualized culture can't lift your head for more than a minute without being bombarded with some sort of sexual image. We need to teach our children and our grandchildren the beauty of modesty and how much God values it. They need to understand the sacred nature and purpose of their bodies. So we can't allow our sickening and grotesque culture to shape or form what's good or evil for us. I fear this is already happening in many churches where there's a desensitization to evil. We we don't want to allow the news or anything on TV to tell us what's good or what's evil. And I would suggest don't trust institutions or agencies to tell you what's good or evil. Only God defines what's good and evil by his word. And anything that stands in the way of his goodness and his purpose is evil. Very simple definition of evil. Now, if you're part of an institution, you know, separate from the church that follows God's way, that's great. But don't count on it lasting long. We know from history it probably won't. We really only need to look to our prestigious universities, our Ivy League schools that began as pastoral training grounds that are now home to the most twisted evil thought you can dream up. So only the word of the Lord stands forever. So things of the earth, we're to correct false teaching and we're to put to death immorality in our lives. All right, you guys doing okay? (laughs) Good. (laughs) So now we're going to take a positive and hopeful turn here. So we're getting into the good stuff. We're getting into the things that we can joyfully go after with all of our hearts. We're to set our hearts and our minds on things above. And J.D. talks about this regularly, this picture of the horizon line of godliness that we're always keeping our eyes fixed on. Of course, we're never going to reach that perfect godliness here, but we're always moving toward it, toward being conformed to the image of Christ. This is much like uh, when I'm on a mower in the summer. If I'm going to make a nice straight line, I've got to have my eye fixed on a point out ahead. If I'm worried about anything out around me, those lines are going to be ugly. It ain't going to work. So we need to look at the horizon, set our hearts and minds on things above. So as we move further on into the third chapter, into verses 12 through 17, he tells us what to put on. This is the green light on what we're to do. We're to put on the character of Christ. So starting at verse 12, let's give this another try. I'll start with 12, and then you can read the next verse. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. All right, very good. That was much better that time. This last verse 17 is really a good summary statement for what we're talking about this morning, setting our hearts and minds on things above. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. So as Paul moves into what we're to put on, the first thing he does again is remind the Colossian people who they are. He tells them they're chosen, they're made holy, they're beloved, it's so important for us to remember going back to our first point who we are in Christ Paul says since, since you've been raised we're now ambassadors for the Lord Jesus on the earth this is our new identity in which the spirit of God takes up residence in our lives and he spurs us on to godly living with compassion and kindness and humility and forgiveness so what does this look like in daily life This is where the rubber meets the road. It might look like showing patience and kindness to that person at work that's driving everybody up the wall. You've never met that person, have you? Okay. Every day. (laughs) Might it be possible that they're actually in terrible pain and need a kind and listening ear? It might look like forgiving that person that you're harboring hatred for. The Lord showed us the pattern in this by laying down his life while we were still sinners. It might look like giving or receiving a loving correction from a brother or sister, as difficult as that is, and still being thankful for it. it might look like dropping everything, sending that card of encouragement or even visiting a brother or sister who's hurting and who's in need. It might look like dedicating the day to God's glory and service to the Lord before your feet even hit the floor in the morning when you wake up. It might look like not having to dominate in an intense discussion to have the last word, especially after you've already given loving truth. I remember early on in marriage Brittany and I <clears throat> we'd have these fun conversations, you know, we'd banter back and forth about our preferences or you know, who's better at this or whatever and so we'd kind of have these fun discussions and of course her mind is like for those of you that know computers it's kind of like her mind is like this the Pentium i7, you know, the the top of the line and just it's like flies through everything and I'm like the Intel Celeron processor that's still like chewing on that Word document, you know, so, but anyway, we've, we've had those fun discussions in the past, and of course, she'd always get the the best of me, I mean, her mind just works better than mine. One day, finally, I, kind of had enough of it, and we had one of these discussions where we were, you know, having a good time or whatever, jabbing each other, and I was kind of walking out of the room as, you know, as, as our conversation was wrapping up, and, she thought she had that last little zinger on me, you know. And I just stopped at the door and kind of turned around and I said, last word, and then I walked out. <laughs> That's all I could come up with. <laughs> so going back to these things, this is what we're to put on. This is the heavenly pattern we're now to follow as we live on the earth. The pattern of Christ. We're now clothed with Him. So we learned last week, as we studied the book of Matthew, that as Jesus walked the earth, as He taught and as He did His miracles and did all these wonderful things, one of the general things that that message was sending us is: This is what My kingdom looks like. This is the way you're now to follow. I read recently uh, about the process of a sorry being made. Now this is not like I'm so sorry. This is a S A R I, sorry. It's a beautiful woven, and there's a picture of it there woven fabric that ladies wear in India on their wedding day. It's woven out of gold and silver threads along with other vibrant colors. And in some cases, when they're made, a father and a son will work together on this. The father sits up on a platform at the loom with the pattern in mind, he knows what's coming. He knows what he's doing, and in his fingers, he's got all the different color threads that he's weaving in and out. The son, on the other hand, is intently watching his father. And at his father's command, the son simply just moves the shuttle from one side to the other and back at his father's command, at his nod. Soon, this beautiful pattern starts emerging. The son doesn't know what's coming, but the father does. And so now this picture is us right now. We now follow the Lord's pattern and obey him at his command, even if we don't know what's coming. All the while, he knows this beautiful tapestry he's making, us being conformed to the image of Christ. And speaking of heavenly patterns, let's talk about heaven. Let's allow our eternal hope to fuel us now to holy living. So back to our swimming adventure here. You're seven, eight years old. You've just gotten to the pool. You're gearing up for that big jackknife. This is where we're at in verses three and four here. He says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You're completely immersed in him. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Amen. Amen. So quickly here, we're going to allow ourselves to do a cannonball into heaven. For those of us who have faith in Christ, we're now hidden in him. Our eternal position secured in him. And when he returns, all jubilation and celebration is going to break out. Just like our girls when they find out they're going to go swimming. I was listening to a sermon by Pastor Colin Smith. And he was talking about his own study of a man named Richard Baxter. Richard Baxter was a 17th century Puritan theologian and a pastor, and he wrote a book called The Saints' Everlasting Rest. He's been described as a chronically ill man dealing with tuberculosis, dyspepsia, kidney stones, intermittent bleeding, migraine headaches, pretty much you name it, and he had it. But because of these ailments he spent at least a half an hour every day meditating on heaven and on his hope with the Lord. And there's a quote of his that I think is so cool for us to remember. He says, make sure you take a walk in the new Jerusalem every day. Make sure you take a walk in the new Jerusalem every day. I do believe the Lord delights in our longing for our full fellowship with him in the future Looking to our eternal dwelling with Christ immediately refocuses our hearts and minds on things above. That heavenly pattern that we're now supposed to follow as we look at our Father, our Lord. This is the part of Christ now being our life that we long for full fellowship and righteousness and renewal with him forever. As John MacArthur writes, to be preoccupied with heaven is to be preoccupied with the one who reigns there. So think about what we're told of our eternal life, appearing with him in glory. The Lord's making everything new, new heavens and new earth. So that bucket list of yours, okay, that's fine, but it's going to be nothing in comparison to what's coming. No more curse. Have you ever been frustrated at work? Anybody who's ever worked today immediately laughs at that, right? Of course you have been. You ever been frustrated with your garden? There's no more curse. So your work is going to be fruitful and unhindered and delightful. There's no more death. There's no more mourning or pain. We're going to be comforted by God himself. We're going to have renewed bodies, so you're going to remember what it feels like to be eight years old and so excited to go swimming that you're going to jump out of your shoes. (laughs) Amen. And ultimately, God's going to be with us. We'll be his renewed people, full of joy and righteousness, bursting with life. And I'm excited about that as a super introvert, bursting with life. So let yourself take a walk in the new Jerusalem every day and let it fuel holy living as you set your hearts and your minds on things above. As you follow this new pattern the Lord set for us. And why wouldn't we think about that? This is our eternal home. After billions upon billions of years, we're going to be there billions upon billions of years. And then more, and then more. No end. He, Jesus, Jesus, is our eternal home, the resurrection and the life, both now on the earth and forever. Let's pray. Father, what a...